This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Thank you for making time to uh, talk to me today. Um, it really is to get a sense of your story and, and how you are reimagining higher education. But before we uh, start our conversation, I invited you to bring an object that represents um, your uh, career and your approach to your own personal learning and also the learning that you um, are promoting in the various institutions in which you've worked. Yeah, and I've got it just over here. And it's, um, I don't know if you can see that. Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> Jiminy Cricket. And uh, this is something that is, is quite precious to me uh, because I became a, a vice chancellor at Central Queensland University. And we built an incredible team there um, on the exec. And we were very close knit. It was a very close friendship group as well as professional group. Uh, and we had um, someone who was fantastic there called Jenny Roberts, who had really joined the university. I mean, I like to say she started in the typing pool. I don't think they ever had a typing pool, but she started really as an EA and she worked her way up and uh, uh, was a, a deputy vice chancellor or PVC there. And I think she really wanted to, uh, you know, show that she could, that she had to prove to herself that she, she could do it in another uni. So very sadly, she decided for me, she decided to leave and she went off to another university to be um, a DVC. Uh, but what Jenny did, Jenny was always like our conscience in the university. And um, when we were going off on flights of fancy, and you know coming up with these stupid ideas she would be the one that always said look does this really fit in with our values does this fit in with our strategic plan is this really what we're about and uh, when she left she said look I'm, I'm not going to be around anymore to you know be your conscience reminding of you the values so I want you to put this on your shoulder so you remember the values of the university um so I think, you know, being a, a value-driven organisation and hopefully a person as well, I think that's really important to me. And, you know, Jenny reminds me of that through this little humidity cricket. I, I actually know Jenny and I agree. She's a remarkable, she's a remarkable woman and I can understand why you had missed her. But look, when I did my research on you, You've had a pretty remarkable career too. You've uh, worked in, uh, you know, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, in a in a health related field. Then you took over leadership positions at uh, St Martin's College. Um, then you came to Australia, and held may a number of uh, leadership positions. And you know, you're one of these these people who've uh, had two vice chancellorships uh, after a period of retirement. But I I understand that your nine years at um, at Charles, Charles uh, sorry, Central Queensland University, 
well, as an outsider being provost at Macquarie at the time, uh, you were a transformer and you were you were a disruptor. And you know, the presence and the visibility of of CDU was really very interesting to watch. And you know, you you actually pushed the boundaries in terms of the role of universities in various communities and in various towns. So can you tell me how you, and, and you were also probably the only vice chancellor that had a pilot's license. <laughs> so yeah. in fact, you were literally flying high and flying high. Yeah. So you want me to talk a little about CQ? Yeah, yeah. How, how, you got, how you got to be where you are. And you've already started it off by talking about, you know, values, but, you know, just, just, Give, give me a sense of that, that journey and the sorts of uh, foundations that, that, that brought that sort of rather entrepreneurial uh, gaze to, to your work as a Vice-Chancellor. Yeah, I mean, Central Queensland University is, you know, will always be in my heart. It, it was just a wonderful experience going to CQU. And uh, I, I felt... Uh, I'm a great, I know this is way over the top, but I'm a, a great fan of Churchill, who, you know, really had a career just went making mistakes. I mean, if you have a look, he just made one big mistake after another. But it didn't really matter because it, for that period, you know, leading up to the war and being a war leader, he, you know, what he said is everything led to that position. And I, I felt like very strongly at, at CQU that everything could have come before was leading to that job but I come back to that that job so the the interesting thing is I, I didn't go to university so uh, I, I come from a, a very working class family where you know university just wasn't on the radar um, so you know if you ask me what did your father do I, I can't really tell you he was a he was an unskilled labourer, I guess. He worked as a milkman in an aluminium foundry, putting up concrete garages, working in food and shoe factories. Basically, anywhere he could get an extra uh, bit of money to help the family, he would go and work there. And my mother was the same. Um, incredibly loving family. Uh, but really didn't value education too much. So, you know, we, we as kids, you know, I can't give you some, you know, terrible story of poverty. We were definitely never hungry. We had lots of toys at Christmas, but really no books. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we there were no books in the house. In fact, this was the, the only book that my uh, family ever bought for me. And mm -hmm. there's an interesting inscription on it because... You probably can't read it. Probably not. Scott, Merry Christmas. To Scott, Merry Christmas, 1971, love from mum and dad. And the thing I like about this inscription particularly is you can see they've written Christmas and then crossed it out. So they were having a bit of a problem spelling Christmas. So... That's a, another very precious object to me. So a very loving family, but really not, you know, the thought of our family going on to universities was sort of out of the question. Um, so my brother went into the army as a boy soldier. 
and he's, he's now a truck driver. And my other brother works on building sites on a, a digger, I guess. Both great people, both have great lives. And, you know, I think, you know, that's fine. They didn't go. I, I was a bit of a weirdo and kind of uh, really wanted to, you know, um, I, I did see the value of education. So I did stay on, but I went to a pretty rough school. I mean, uh, yeah, in fact, a very rough school because uh, I failed the 11 plus and we weren't religious. So I didn't get into the religious school. So we went to the, you know, I think you'd call it sink school. So, but I could see the value of education and I liked it. And I did stay on for years 11 and 12, uh, but failed them miserably. And probably all the partying and good time I should have had at university, I had in the sixth form. So I failed miserably. At 18, got engaged, fell in love, got engaged, and that all fell apart. And anyway, so I ended up... Uh, with absolutely abysmal A-level results. One, one E of the three A-levels, I got one E. Uh, but very luckily, that got me into uh, a hospital-based system to do radiography. Mm -hmm. So back then, you could do a two-year diploma in radiography. It was based in a hospital, that World Centre of Excellence, Northampton General Hospital. Uh, uh, with a lot of practical training done at Kettering General Hospital. So I went there and uh, did um, radiography training. And to be honest, as, uh, you know, as a springboard for where I was going to go, it didn't feel like it at the time, but actually it was incredibly lucky. Mm -hmm. um, because if I'd have just scraped into... Uh, you know, a university or a polytechnic in those days, maybe to do biology, you know, I'd have been a pretty mediocre biology student, you know, and, you know, I'm not sure what would have happened. Uh, but getting into radiography uh, was really good because then I worked as a, uh, a radiographer in London. I met my wife, who was a medical student at the time, she was in London, so I moved to London and just worked in hospitals around London, being a radiographer, um, and then did uh, my higher diploma of radiography at uh, Guy's Hospital. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, they, there's a, uh, a woman there called Margaret Howard, who was, you know, an old-style principal of a school of radiography. She must have seen something in me because she took me on as a student teacher and I did the teaching diploma of the College of Radiographers. Uh, so then I had the diploma, the higher di diploma and the teaching diploma. And I could see that all of the health professions were moving over into universities. So physio was moving over, OT was moving over. And I thought, you know, radiography is gonna move over at some point. And I've got to be ready for that move. So I, I was very interested in politics at the time, you know, just, you know, absorbed by following politics, watching politics. So somehow uh, they must have been desperate for students, but I went to uh, City Polytechnic and sold myself into a master's degree 
in British politics and governance on the back of a radiography qualification. And that was a, uh, a life transforming event uh, because really I've do, been doing radiography, which was all about training, training, and it was all about, you know, taking x-rays. And then to go and do a master's degree in politics and government, it, it really was like the blinkers coming up and seeing that there was this whole world, you know, just words that I'd heard, you know, like conservatism, socialism, liberalism, you know, really understanding what that meant and where they came from in history. It, it was just, yeah, a, a, a city poly was a great place to go because it was just, you know, it was during the Thatcher years. So it was, you know, you had incredibly radical people there, all the socialist workers were there, but then you had really conservative professors working there. And sort of every lunch break seemed to be a battleground in the refectory. So it was great. So, and then it, it did happen. Radiography went over into, uh, uh, into universities and suddenly, I, you know, I found that I was one of five radiographers in the whole of the UK that had a master's degree. So as you can imagine, my career just went like this. So I literally was, uh, you know, by the time I was 28, I think I became the head of uh, the School of Radiography up at St. Martin's, which was part of Lancaster Uni, which really uh, annoyed a lot of people. There was an old bastion of uh, radiography who said, look at him. The ink's not even dry on his diploma and he reckons he's the head of the school. <laughs> the usual generosity of our academic colleagues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so that, I mean, you could say that you're an accidental um, educator and leader. Or yeah, did you, would you, you just took opportunities as they arose and, you know, oh, this looks interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's true. I think that's true. But yeah, yeah, this when opportunities arose, came up, and then you know, obviously meeting Anita, my wife was really important. We had kids very young. Uh, she she'd come over to Australia on a gap year, and uh, Anita, I think, had a pretty tough upbringing, one way and another. And then she came to Australia and. It was it was like paradise for her, spending a year in Australia. And then she went back to carry on with her medical school training. And when I, I met her, actually on the back of a truck in the Sahara, but that's a different story. Um, but, you know, she, she obviously had fallen in love with this place called Australia and just wanted to get back here, regretted that she, she hadn't become an illegal immigrant and stayed on. Um, so I think it was inevitable that we would come to Australia and we definitely came here on holiday and just loved it. And then, uh, yeah, ended up, <laughs> that's a funny story, I ended up with a job here, but uh, uh, ended up with a job at Charles Sturt University. So when I, I, I hear you talking, it's not the orthodox uh, trajectory of somebody who actually understands university and understands having been a student in a university. But what's, I mean, you've brought a, a completely different perspective 
into into what universities are like and how and the student experience. So where did that come from? Well, maybe it, it is li a little bit being that outsider. Uh, I probably don't feel it so much now, but definitely that imposter system was very big for me for a long time. Uh, but really, you know, coming from a very low socioeconomic background, uh, really understanding that that background and, you know, not looking down on that background, seeing that, you know, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds are having great lives. Thank you very much. You know, we haven't got to go in as saviours in universities. Uh, uh, and, you know, my two brothers, great people, living great lives. And, you know, there's that. So it's an understanding of that. And so I think really that really led to my real thinking that universities at the heart and they should be engagement and connection and if you have a look when I was at CQU the whole uni ran around engagement you know and you know what I used to say there a lot and I say it a little bit here is we can never you know we can never be Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Sydney or Melbourne University. We can. We, and I think that's the problem. A lot of VCs and a lot of universities, they strive to be Sydney University or they strive to be Harvard. And they're never going to get there. You know, mm -hmm. but I used to say at CQ, we can only ever be a second-class Sydney University. If we, if we compete on those terms and we say what's important to Sydney is important to us, we will only ever be second rate. What we need to say is what's important to us and more importantly, what's important to our communities. And that's what that's the benchmark we set. If we can do that, we can be a completely different kind of university and be the best. We can be the best. We're never going to be the best Sydney. We're never going to be this great ancient academic institution, but we can be the best at what we do. And going to CQU was wonderful because, you know, CQU had got itself into a mess, you know, and, you know, it, its reputation was pretty much at rock bottom. And, uh, you know, it something had to change there. And um, so going in there, there, there was just an, such an appetite amongst the staff and amongst the council of the university that you know we want to we this is not how we see ourselves and we don't want other people seeing us like this and you know it's really interesting because I got Denise I worked for Denise Bradley when I was at UniSA and I I asked to be to be a referee and when I rang her up and said oh you know would you be a referee I'm thinking going for a VC's job and she said oh yeah yeah I'll be a referee for you which university of of you were you thinking of and I said, Central Queensland University. That's all the phone out here somewhere. She went absolutely mad. That, did, did you know Denise? I did know Denise, yes. Well, you know, she had a very colourful turn of phrase when she you got did. to know her. She did. And she, yeah. she actually wanted to recruit me to UniSA. <laughs> right. Well, she was, it's very colourful. And then uh, basically said, don't go there. It's, you know. Yeah, anyway, she was very, didn't think it was, because he'd hit an all-time low. 
And, but anyway, I thought it was the university for me. Um, you know, it was really down on its luck. Everyone was against it. So I don't know, that, that really appealed to me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I remember uh, Sandra Harding giving me the same advice, you know, um, you know, why don't you wait? Why don't you wait to another region? Because you know, I love regionals. Wait mm. for another region. Don't go to that one. But I did go to that one. And uh, what I found was just a fantastic group of people there who really wanted to do something. I found a really pretty good, pretty good regional university. But then having this massive international arm which wasn't actually run by the university. They'd set up a private company and uh, that company were running that. So when I went there, I was really the vice chancellor of half a university. Uh, I was running the regional operation, but the international operation had its own CEO, had its own board, and I wasn't even on the board. Um, so, and at that point, 50% of the students were in that international arm and I wasn't even on the board. So it, it, it was in, interesting uh, to sort that out. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, that international arm had a different set of values to the values of the regional university. And I think what people were seeing from the outside were what go, was going on in that international side of the university. So, um, over the next nine and three quarter years, I will have you know, because I bought me a plaque at the end, because I can quite make 10. Um, yeah, really, it, it was almost like a blank sheet of paper to really get that university moving forward. We built the university around one word, and that was engagement. Everything was engagement, engagement, engagement. Um, and just had a, a lot of fun there and ended up working with some fantastic people. Um, and I think, look, it's hard to tell because I guess people don't tell me what they really think, but I think we did turn the reputation of the university around. I think it is now pretty well regarded. Um, and it was just, just picking on one word. And I'm not very bright. That wasn't, to be honest, that wasn't my idea. I've seen Sandra Harding come into JCU, I was a BBC up there, mm -hmm. and she'd come in and she found her word, and her word was tropical. Mm -hmm. Tropical, 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 tropical. And don't forget tropical, tropical, and tropical. Just push that agenda all the time. I thought, God, that's a clever thing to do. So when I went to see QU, what's the word for this university? Looking at where it was, what's in my heart and engagement you know i've been i was a founder member and then president of the australian university's community engagement alliance mm -hmm. uh, and it just seemed to work so how then did that play out in terms of the student experience because i think you're right that 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 was a very powerful mobilizing trope uh you know for you to go out and and people knew it they didn't quite know the details, but engagement, yeah, that's what we want. We want to be engaged. So how did that then play out in terms of students? Yes. Well, it, it was really about how do we get students 
engage with the communities they're serving. So, I mean, it's all the obvious things that everybody's doing uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, work integrated learning, every student having some industrial experience. And I mean, that's easy for your nurses and your teachers, but how do you do that, you know, for your sociologists and your, you know, more, but we looked at that, how we could get them out there into the community. Uh, we devised community engagement qualifications. So and um, you saw this, so students, when they went up and got their engineering degree, they also got an engagement uh, certificate as well, a graduation. Uh, we, yeah, we just really looked at how we got people out there. And being such a big international university, we looked at how can we get our international students engaged with their communities. So we were involved in lots of community projects, you know, in, in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. <laughs> so engagement became at the heart of what the students were doing as well. And uh, I always sort of tell the story. I, I met some uh, pretty high level recruiters down at our Sydney campus. And they recruited things like accountancy. And they told me, they said, they said you know, if a student gets an accounting degree from an Australian university, we know it's going to be good. I mean, there isn't a bad public Australian university, in my opinion. There isn't a bad one. And if you look at the quilt data and all of that, you know, we say, oh, terrible. You know, we, this, this one came 39. But the difference between 39 and number one is, is really small. I mean, so all the universities are good. So what, and they picked that up and they said, look, if you've got an accounting degree from an Australian university, we know you're going to know accountancy. We know it's got accreditation professionally. So we get the CVs and we don't really look at all that stuff. The only page we look at in a CV when a, a new student graduate gives us is the last page, the extracurricular activity. What have they been doing? How have they been engaging their community? How have they been contributing? That's how we really select people. And I, I took a lesson out of that. And, you know, so, you know, really, I knew that we were doing a good job on the first three pages of the CV of a graduate. But what were we doing about the fourth page, the extra? So we put, you know, really looked at what we could do to get uh, an engagement agenda around that. We also thought it was really important that we looked at our international students as well. So there was a lot of thought about how we contribute to the Australian community. So like most universities, we were giving a lot back to central Queensland. We have given a lot back to the communities we worked in using really our three resources, our facilities, our staff, and our biggest one, our students. Mm -hmm. But then again, a lot of the wealth of that university, and I'd argue a lot of university, doesn't come from Australia, it comes from overseas. So we have lots of students from India, Nepal, Bangladesh. How do we contribute backwards? And again, use those three resources. Well, we haven't got many facilities out there, but we have got staff and students. 
So we form relationships with organisations uh, in those countries so that how we could give back to India. And, you know, probably the most famous one is the work we did with Salam Balat. Salam Balat means salute the children, and it's an organisation in uh, Delhi that rescues street kids, mm -hmm. gives them a home, and then some education. So what we did, we formed a relationship with them, and then we got our students, particularly nurses, social workers, psychologists, to go out and work with the kids in India. Uh, and we also gave scholarships of... Uh, so that their kids uh, could go on to university or college. And I was over there this year, earlier this year. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't from that university anymore, but got Nick Klomp invited me to go along because uh, the minister was going there. And I went along and there were 100 CQU graduates of university. Are these street kids? So these... These are kids that have either got lost or abandoned. They're wandering around the streets at the age of four years old, rescued by Salem Black, and then CQU paid for a degree for them. Yeah. I mean, how good is that? So there's one last there called Sonia, who I know Sonia really well, and she was one of our first to go through. Little girl, she was actually abandoned on the, the you know, you can't imagine this, but in so much poverty, this kid probably wasn't going to survive. The only tiny, tiny glimmer of hope for this family, and we can't imagine this, was to put this little four-year-old girl onto a train and let it go off. And she ended up on the streets of Delhi. Thank God rescued by Salam Black. Girls, if they're not rescued very quickly, terrible. But she was rescued. Uh, and here she is, you know, 20 years later, with a, a degree from the best university in India in fashion design. And then went over to work in uh, Paris as a fashion mm -hmm. designer. And now has come back to India, got married, she's got children. And now, uh, you know, so that's, you know, that's just quite incredible yeah so, so what, I, what i'm hearing though is it's actually heart that's driving you and and behind heart is actually strategy and a real commitment to people yeah look i, th I think you're right i mean um I, I think you're right i i just i just love and i'm so fortunate that i've ended up in a career and uh, in a sector that can make a difference. And, you know, that difference isn't measured in the surpluses we make. You know, you know it's, it's not measured in all of that. It's about the difference we can make. It came home to me, um, Judith, when I did retire. So I, I did nine and three quarters. Don't forget the three quarters. And I didn't quite make the 10 years. They were going to get me a pin with nine and three, you know, the long service pin. Uh, and in fact, what they gave me in the end was a glass plaque because they said it cost too much to get the pin done. But anyway. You weren't worth it. <laughs> but I've been there 10 years. I was, you know, still relatively young. I think I was only 56. Because I always seem to be, you know, the youngest to become a head of school of radiography, one of the youngest to become a VC, and, you know. So I was 
56 and Nadra and I got talking. I just had the contract renewed for another five years, so heading towards the 15 years. And we got talking and said, you know, we met on the back of that truck in the Sahara. And all we used to talk about when we were traveling all day was where we were going to travel, where we were going to go here and we were going to go there. And, you know, then, you know, our career started to take off. We had children very young and, you know, we blinked. And then here we were, we're in our mid-50s. Do we do another five-year contract? Because she was an academic, she'd become, she had an interesting journey, but had become an academic. Do we do another five years and then possibly another five years after that? You know, that takes up to about 65. Is that what we want to do? Or do we want to do something different? And we decided to actually go back to those dreams of traveling. And we, we bought a truck, we fitted it all out. We had it booked to go to Vladivostok. And we were going to spend 10 years traveling around the world, just traveling and seeing the world, living in, in this truck. And that was great. So I retired, we got the truck, we fitted it out, got it booked to go overseas, and then COVID hit. So we've got a, a nice place up in Cairns. So we're, we're there for about a year or so. Um, sitting through COVID. The phone didn't run, ring once because everyone assumed that I'd gone off and we were in the middle of Russia or somewhere. Um, but sitting there and I was uh, trying to learn to play the guitar because they bought me a guitar when I left uh, CQU and I was trying to learn to knit. And it just came over me in a wave one morning. I just thought, there's no meaning to this life. There's, there's absolutely, I'm, I'm not making any difference to anyone sitting there doing this. And you know, when we get in that truck and we start driving around, the world, there's not going to be a lot of meaning in that. You know, where is the meaning in that life? And that's a long way of saying that I think you're right. I mean, it is the heart. I mean, if you're not leading a meaningful life, and for me, a meaningful life is making a difference then why bother? And it, it's so fantastic in the universe, particularly if you're the VC, that you can make a massive difference. You can do these absolutely stupid things, like go and persuade the council, you know, 1% of your turnover, we're going to give back to the communities. It doesn't sound like much, 1%, but, you know, when you 1% of turnover, make, always make sure you say to your council it's 1% of turnover. You say it's 1% of surplus, you never get anywhere. But if it's 1% of turnover, you've then suddenly got a lot of money that you can start putting kids through universities in India. You can start working with trafficked women in Nepal. You can start planting a million trees in the middle of Sydney. I mean, how good is that? So I've got one last question for you. What advice would you give to the young, younger Scott? Whoa. Um, I don't know, just do what you did, just let it happen and just take take opportunities. Be authentic, but I think I have always been authentic, you know. I you know 
Now, I sit around here. Universities are full of these really clever people. I mean, really bright people. There's no way I can pretend to be clever like them. I mean, you know, I am me. Uh, you know, I am not the brightest tool in the shed uh, when it comes to academia. You know, I played all those games. I got the masters and the PhD in Publishing Bay, but uh, yeah, just about every academic in this place is in a different league to what I am. But just being authentic and being you and, you know, playing to your strengths, which I think for me was, you know, being able to provide a bit of a vision and leadership. I think that's, that's the way to go. Actually, can we end on students? Because students are, are very much part of your your story, what advice would you give to the current uh, cohort of students that are really graduating into a very uncertain world? Um, before I do that, I'm gonna give a bit of advice to anyone that's working in university. Universities are, are tough places. And I think they're particularly tough at the moment. I think there's some big, things going on in society which are really impacting the universe. I've just been talking, we've got the senior academic team which I've just been talking to and I think we all thought that we came out of COVID after six months it was all back to normal. It's not. There are things out there really changing and they're having a pretty tough impact on universities and as you go up in leadership you, it gets tougher and tougher. So, you know, I'm in the chancery and I, you know, we see the worst of everything. You know, all the student complaints, all the staff complaints, all the naughty children, it all comes to this building. And uh, my advice to anyone that is in universities and finding it really tough and getting a little bit down, do what I do. Get out of your office walk around the campus and find some students and talk to some students. So go over to the library. I just find a student and say, hi, I'm, I'm Scott, I work here. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? And suddenly you get these incredible stories. Every student, in a, particularly I think in a university like this, which is you know very much an equity university, Every one of them has got an inspiring story. Did it, did it on Monday, and we're a dual sector. I walked into one of the medical fabrication units, talked to a guy in his mid 50s, in his third year of his uh, apprenticeship as a medical fabricant. He came, he just had an epiphany three or four years ago. He wanted to do something with his life. He was going to do an apprenticeship. He couldn't read or write. Couldn't read or write. And this guy came to this university and the metal fab team, the, the, the apprentice trainers, took him under their wing. They've not only taught him metal fabrication, they've taught him how to read, how to write with the help of our literacy units. This guy was just waxing lyrical about how wonderful our staff were, how wonderful the university was, how this wasn't about his apprenticeship, it was about him as a human being, how we um you know how it's just given in confidence and you can think that everything's bad but you go and talk to a student like that and everything's good yeah yeah now i want to get him to come and talk at graduation so uh what advice would i give to students well again i mean obviously 
get your qualification. I mean, there are a million distractions at the moment and some of those distractions around work and all the various hours, but get your qualification because that's a hurdle. I mean, you've got to get across that hurdle to get your qualification. But then go out into the world and be yourself, be authentic. I mean, that, you know, the worst thing you meet are people that aren't authentic. You know they're saying these words, but they don't really mean. So be authentic, be yourself. Even if you don't think much of yourself, be yourself, because you're a much better person yourself than this person you're going to pretend to be. So be authentic. Take all the uh, opportunities, and there'll be a million opportunities that come up. Don't take yourself too seriously. Have, have fun. Uh, try and find a partner that is a real soulmate that's there for you. That you know, no matter you're all you are going to have rough times, and if but if you can find a partner, the rough times aren't too bad. That's really important. But yeah, just have fun. If, you know what they say: it's not a dress rehearsal. You're only going to get this go once. So give it your best. What a great way for us to end this conversation. Scott, thank you for uh, talking to me today. I've really enjoyed it and I look forward to catching up with you next year at uh, Universities Australia in Canberra. That's fine. I always love talking about my favourite subject, me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education. Candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change and best practice in teaching and learning visit studiosity.com.